All right, welcome to another episode of Not Investment Advice. We've got the NAA boys here today, Jack Butcher, Trunk fan, Bilal Zaidi, and we have a repeat guest, a special guest today, John Wu. Welcome back to the show, man. What up, boys? Good Our to audience have you on. was asking for more uh, Harvard Business School insights. I'm like, I, I know, I know who to go. I know who to go to. Who can explain the ETH merge, but with a Harvard lens? That's exactly what we need. Um, we're going to get straight into the meme in a week before we we we're not even going to tease anything. So I don't good. even know if you guys saw this uh, on the. It's all over the internet, but there's like this sub. Uh, meme industry of people putting the craziest starbucks orders so for the <laughs> listeners uh this this young lady don't even have to say her name but she ordered a uh i don't even know what this is, is rachel Sino coming Pew. after us is that she, you she ordered an espresso with no ice and then five extra espresso shots two pumps of chai one pump of peppermint syrup three pumps of raspberry syrup one pump of vanilla one pump classic syrup and there's that's only half the ingredients but anyways our boy parik says uh uh, trust me, she has great personality. And then she says, uh, this is the personality. I, I, I don't agree with that necessarily, man. She, this individual just likes her Starbucks drink a certain way. I'm simple, man. I go to Starbucks. Let me ask you guys right after. But I go to Starbucks. I go, give me the nitro and just ruin me. And they're like, we got you. Ruin so, me. <laughs> John, when you go to Starbucks, what is the John Woo order at Starbucks? Honestly, the nitro, the nitro. Although uh, for a <laughs> while I was like, you know, I'm not going to drink Starbucks. I'm a coffee snob now. And I came back and I got the nitro and it was kind of garbage. It was kind of trash. You know, it is jet fuel, but it's, it's not that great. The uh, well, they to they told me about the nitro that they can only give you so much because there's like a, a legal limit for how much caffeine they can give you. I asked like I went to Before get it, it might be different for you guys, but I went to the night uh, Starbucks in Vancouver. And I'm like, hey, I'll just have the largest size nitro. Like, we're sorry, we can only give you this like grande. We we're, like, it's not legal for us to sell you any more caffeine in one uh, container. State up there, isn't it? It's yeah, I know, man. Oh my god. <laughs> it's like when you go to the movie theater and you get the extra extra large popcorn. Have you seen? It? It's like a bucket. It's insane, man. When I saw that in America, I was like, oh, this is welcome to America. This is uh, when you know you're living the, living the good life. All right, John, we're going to talk about Burning Man in a second because you just came back from Burning Man. But let's quickly <laughs> let people know what we're going to be talking about. Obviously, the ETH merge is happening kind of as we speak. Um, so by the time this comes out, like it might have already happened within a day or two. Or the internet's um, gone down because it failed and then yeah. we can't communicate anymore. <laughs> we quit NIA because ETH completely fell off a cliff. But no, so we're going to talk a little bit about ETH merge, break it down in like simple terms because I think a lot of time everyone's talking about all these big words and big phrases and we kind of want to break it down in simple terms and what what's actually happening um and related to the meme of the week the starbucks and polygon announced this this thing as well on their rewards program we kind of wanted to get your take on that as well um and then i think you're gonna have to leave but we'll see and then trung and uh, jack and i are going to talk about kanye west's biggest business deals basically what he's been doing and i think there's been some crazy stuff that happened last week so we'll get to that um but yeah so that but before we do that you just got back from burning man what are the highlights man what was going on there it was wild man i mean honestly the highlight was just a week of no phone and you get to do whatever the fuck you want 24 hours a day at any Trump's grin right now Sorry. you know and and it's one of those things that like okay i want you to imagine the first five minutes of your first cocktail party at, at harvard business school okay burning man is the complete opposite of that experience 
I was so about to like, ask, what's the Venn diagram of HBS and Burning Man? This is going to be some It's bigger than you'd expect. It's bigger than you'd expect. But it's just one of those situations where, like, if you're not enjoying yourself at any point, doing whatever you're doing, you literally just walk away. And you you can literally just walk, just wander right down in the desert and just be like, I'm, I'm, I'm physically moving my body away from whatever's happening right now. And that type of freedom, we just don't have that in society. You know, you can't just eject out of anything at any given point. And so this notion of like, A, ultimate freedom, and then B, nobody's trying to transact with you. There's no, no extraction. There's no agenda. There's no like, you know, we got to get this meeting done in 27 minutes and put the twos together. Like, there's no like, I'm trying to sell you something. It's just like, we're all just here. People are trying to give you stuff, like cool stuff, experiences, gifts. And if you don't like it, you literally can just turn around, turn around and, and walk away. And that, that's just a that's just a mind-blowing concept for society. And I get why people, you know, fall into the burning man cult and never go out because it's like a Peter Pan reality. You know, it's just like you just don't see that anywhere else in the world. And, and it's pretty cool. Were are you a with- better person for oh. having gone? <laughs> I can't date for any. A, a better person. I don't know if I'm a better person. I've definitely seen a vision of just like how the world could work even for a week. Like, obviously that's not the way the world will work, right? It's like the most ideal form of like non-corrupt communism that you could possibly imagine where people just make the coolest things and they just give them away for free. And there's like no desire for like monetary remuneration, like anything. Um, obviously that could never work, but for like a week, like a week long experiment, like it's dope. Nice. Triangle Jack, did you guys ever go? I've never been, man. Got- I really, I think I dropped the ball on that. I don't think I could use my, <laughs> my marriage credits on that one right now. Yeah, yeah that's a, I, there that's was a, a big There was one. like a period in like 2015, 2016, my wife's like, I know that while well, your friend's going to Burning Man, you're trying to go there. She's like, I will be keeping count and there will be remuneration. <laughs> um. All right, John, let's get to the ETH merge, the big stuff now. So I don't know if Triangle Jack, you have any specific questions, but kind of from my side, it would be cool just to get like the high level of what's actually happening, like in simple terms, as simple terms as we can. Like I might have to flag you if you start using uh, any buzzwords just to dumb it down for someone like me. Please. Um, Yeah, where do we begin? I mean, number one, it's probably the most complex crypto upgrade for any network ever. Um, And maybe it's important to like, just start with what Ethereum is. Like we talk about Ethereum as a world computer. The way I like to describe it to people is it's a state machine. And what a state machine is, is just a computer that keeps track of a bunch of account balances or state. And then some transactions happen and then there's a new state. And so like, if we want to practice being a blockchain, this is an exercise that I like doing where I want everyone to just compute five plus seven in their heads. Okay. And then like, and then I'm just going to ask everyone get 13. Did, did, is it, is it 13? Did everyone get 12? Right. And so if everyone got 12, which hopefully you did other than from who didn't graduate elementary school, um, if everyone got 12, then like, you know, we've kind of done a lot of what a blockchain does, which is like, we took some starting state five, we added two, and then we got some ending state seven and, or sorry, it was actually five plus seven equals 12. <laughs> so I didn't even get my facts right. We, we had a starting state five, we added seven and then we got 12. And we all did it together and we all agree that that's what happened. And we're all going to write down that the new state of the world is 12. Well, that's like what distributed compute is, right? Is It's basically just like, we're all doing this computation. We all agree that that the thing transitioned appropriately. And so the way ETH works is there's kind of like two components. One, there's like this computer part, this like state transition function 
It's like a virtual computer, so a piece of software that runs on all these nodes and validators. That's what computes the like five plus seven part, right? You don't actually have to do it in your head. Like a computer does it for you. That's like the software. That's what we would call like the execution layer. That's the thing that does the heavy lifting at the work. Then there's this like other mechanism called the consensus layer, which is like we all have to agree that that's what happened. And what Ethereum is doing is essentially taking the execution layer, which is the software and like how the system works. And it's like doing a hermit crab transition. It's like crawling out of its like proof of work shell, okay? Which is like an old home, which is like how we all agreed previously on 5.7.12. It's like crawling into a new shell called proof of stake. And that is like the most complex thing that's ever happened in Ethereum's history and maybe in crypto's history. Um, and we can get into like, you know, why proof of stake? Like, why did we transition? And there's lots of good reasons for that. But essentially what the network wants consensus participants to do is like commit resources to securing the network, like making sure there's agreement. Because if the agreement falls apart, then the whole network falls apart. Like the whole point of this is like, we all agree that the thing happened. Um, and the way that proof of work mining does it is like, you have to commit to essentially burning a bunch of energy. Like you have to run these computers nonstop trying to crack these cryptographic puzzles. And if you crack the puzzle, then you get to be the person who like moves the state forward from the original state to the new state. And that's like a big responsibility is like writing in the canonical new entry into the ledger. It's like a big responsibility and it comes with a lot of power and economic extraction because if I'm the person who gets to determine what goes in to the ledger, right, going from state A to state B, I can do all kinds of things. I can like extract value. I can see all the orders that are coming in. It's a big responsibility. And so to earn that responsibility, I can't just game the system. I can't just be a guy walking off the street and be like, oh yeah, I'm just gonna write whatever the fuck I want into this book, right? And uh, the economic game of this thing is ensuring that everyone's committing a certain amount of resources so that they can't game the system. You don't wanna give someone something for nothing. Being able to, being producing a block, proposing a block, having it be entered in the ledger, huge responsibility. Um, all of this, you know, the hermit crab shell of proof of work and proof of stake is just a game mechanic to make sure that like nobody can just do that willy nilly. In proof of work, you have to run these miners that burn a ton of energy. In proof of stake, you need to commit a bunch of ether uh, that's at risk in order to kind of move the state from point A to point B. So hopefully that's like a good overview of what. That is a on. good overview. Uh, I think a really good transition from this is: can you walk through? the pros and cons of proof of stake. And do you actually think it's the right solution? Honestly, it's it's so complex and hard to know. I'll tell you like what the thesis is, right? There's like some like high level thesis. One is kind of proof of stake was originally on a roadmap for Ethereum upgrades that was supposed to unlock things like execution sharding and a whole bunch of things that were coming down the e-pipeline that have now been pushed back a number of years because proof of stake took a long time to get in place. Um, so there's a good, there was originally a good reason for that was just setting the stage for future Ethereum upgrades. Um, the second is there's like the, one of the biggest things is the ESG narrative. So moving to proof of stake reduces the amount of energy consumption by the network by like 99.95% or something. So there's like two components to this. One is it's just a waste to like burn all that energy, you know, um, and, and and that's just valuable from a narrative perspective. I, I think uh, Vitalik himself is like, you know, finds it pretty offensive that we're just wasting energy. But there, it comes with a crypto economic benefit too. 
right? Like if one of the prerequisites to playing the game is you have to like literally light energy on fire, well, that's like not productive economic behavior. You know, you were just literally, there's, there's some like loss, some economic loss away from the network that's getting shunted toward essentially like utilities. And so these like utilities around the world or power providers around the world are selling energy to power the Ethereum network. But like that energy is really just meant to make like be the proof that you're investing something in keeping the, the network going. And so the move to proof of stake is saying like, okay, we're going to change the incentive such that instead of just burning energy constantly, you're going to leave a bunch of ether with us. And the ether is going to be staked in the network. And if you act poorly, then we're just going to slash your stake and we're going to take the stake back. And that basically requires like close to no energy relative to the hashing mechanic of proof of work. And so that's the number, that's the second biggest thing, right? Is uh, the, the ESG narrative. The, so part of this then is, so we had a, what's funny, cause the last time you're here in June, uh, that day we actually caught Sailor to agree to come on our podcast. I don't I'm know sick. if you saw the Sailor back and forth with, well, it wasn't really a back and forth. It was just Sailor getting uh, clipped from our pod and like getting pilloried. But I guess his argument with Bitcoin is, with the energy consumption is if Bitcoin is a store value, then he's just comparing with gold and the monetary systems, like look how much energy we use here, right? So that argument would you say is kind of irrelevant with Ethereum because you guys aren't going for, or the Ethereum community broadly isn't like, hey, store value isn't our main objective here. We are this world computer, virtual computer. I think, I, you know, I think these are all narratives, right? But I actually think the Ethereum community is trying to move ETH toward a store of value and like, a, you know, Neo bond, right? Because now, now ETH is not something that, you know, you gain as a reward for running a miner, which by the way, these are very professional organizations. You have to have like, you know, gigantic GPU farms. You have to like be extremely operational. You know, I, I think there's an argument that that's more centralized because you can't really run an ETH miner at home. It's like much harder. Whereas running a proof of stake validator is, is much simpler. You need 32 ETH and you run, you know, ETH client at home and you can start validating the network. And so there's an argument for like much better decentralization with proof of stake. Um, you have to be a professional essentially to run a run proof of work. Um, but part of the benefit of moving to proof of stake is because you don't have to pay these miners so much um, because there's no cost. There's no cost of like lighting all this energy on fire. You don't have to admit as much in inflationary ETH rewards. In other words, ETH, the, the network pays miners, pays validators, pays, pays block producers in two ways. One is with fees. So like you and I transact and like there's some fee pool and then that gets paid to the miner. And the second um, is with inflationary rewards, which is kind of like new ether that's minted in order to incentivize people to secure the network. Because the cost of validation is just coming way, way down, there's just less inflationary rewards. And so it just emits less ETH. And so a lot of people talk about the idea that like ETH issuance is going down, which means just like less new ether is being printed. If I were to like make a, an analogy of the US government, it's like if the US government just like stopped printing money, like they just didn't need to print as much money. Well, the dollar's value would start going up because it wouldn't be so inflationary anymore. Right. And so I think there's this, you know, we talked about the ESG narrative, but the other big narrative is this idea of ETH ether as a store of value because now there's less of it going to be that that's going to be printed and there's hope that it's going to eventually become a net neutral or even deflationary asset and that means the number will go up if there's a certain amount of buy pressure and demand and the supply is now the new issuance supply is coming down 
well, then you just have to expect the number to go up, right? And so uh, I, I think there's a lot of excitement by ETH holders and early ETH people as well that like, this is going to make ETH number go up. What would be an example of bad behavior, John, in, in the proof of stake mechanism? Um, the proof of it, it, so let's say you try to collude with like 33% of the network to, you know, try to inject bad transactions, um, which is one of the failure nodes of proof of stake. You begin colluding, um, you know, you get a, a bunch of validators, a bunch of, uh, that, that represent 33% of the assets together to try to inject bad transactions. That, that would be bad behavior. And then the network can collectively through social consensus, uh, slash the colluding validators to, to say, Hey, look, these people are acting out of line and we're going to remove their stake from the network. Or we're going to burn their stake from the network. And 33% would be 33% of the staked ether. Of correct? the stake. Yes. Of the stake. Right. So that's a lot of, like, cause some of the, the criticisms I've read is, um, the, the idea that currently mining power is actually more of a centralized mechanism, right? Because you need these factory level operations. So in theory, collusion will become more difficult if the staking mechanism gets more decentralized. Is that a fair statement? Yes. All right. Well, I sure. hope that's true. For sure. Yeah, <laughs> John, we'll see. Yeah. So no, I, was, I was just going to ask, just to clarify, you know, people talk about a 51% attack as uh, something when you're designing things like this, you need to be able to withstand that. How is that? How does that relate to the 30% number or the 33% number you mentioned? Is that even yeah, so related at all? In the proof of work paradigm, it is the, the Ethereum network is subject to this 51% attack. It is, it is it. vulnerable to a 51% attack. It's a new paradigm under proof of stake. Got it. Okay. Well, another thing I would love your take on is do you think this is more feasible because of the critical mass achieved with proof of work like the ethereum let's use the word meme as an example has like reached critical mass it's trusted by a certain number of people it's moved a certain amount of value around the world for a number of years and this transition becomes um like you said the narrative is a big part of it but if another blockchain were to come out with this mechanism tomorrow that never ran on proof of work the i could see a world where that just gets rejected from day one because it doesn't have that critical mass the belief the track record the people signing um basically the social consensus that exists for ethereum allows it potentially to make a transition like this um versus competing against something that just is designed this way from scratch there are a lot of proof of stake networks that start that way, but I think what you're saying is really valuable and actually nuanced, which is like you needed people to have faith in the asset in order for proof of stake to work, right? And the the higher the market cap of the asset and the more assets that are staked, the harder it is to attack the network. And so like once a, a, a gigantic amount of the network's assets are staked, then it's like really hard to pollute against it, right? You have to accrue billions and billions and billions of dollars of people who are willing to take the risk of getting all of their stakes burned in order to, to attack the network. Um, and actually, we saw that back in the day with Luna. You remember when Luna crashed to zero, basically? Well, when it crashes to zero, when the asset essentially goes to zero, then like the network isn't secure because then anyone can put up essentially zero dollars 
of stake in order to validate. And once you can, and once it's essentially worth zero, like you can accrue a vast amount of validation power, like uh, stake for just not a lot of money. This is what we're talking about with like how hard it is to game the system. You start getting something for nothing if the if the asset is not worth very much. And so ETH just being a really battle tested asset, right? Number two in market cap, um, being very institutionalized, having a diverse set of holders, um, having you know, everything's relative, but like price stability, you know, like hasn't like gone to zero. Um, these are all things that are working in its favor in its transition to proof of stake. So yeah, I think that's definitely very well said, Jack. So Vitalik likes to joke, I don't think you mentioned it, but he says uh, first you got to merge, then surge, then verge, purge, and splurge. Can you, can you explain what those mean? So the next one is surge after merge. What What is a surge? Yeah, so actually, I'm I'm not ultra familiar with every single one of those steps, um, but I do know that Ethereum has been thinking for a really long time about data sharding, which is making data availability much much cheaper. Yeah, that's sur- that that that's surge. <laughs> so okay, so maybe I didn't know the terminology. Um, and and the notion here is like there's a, a certain amount of like Ethereum resource pricing, right? All the resources on the, this like virtual computer are the resources of a normal computer. There's like processor, the time there is uh, storage, right? Um, and so as Ethereum has moved toward a roll-up centric roadmap, which means like essentially it's relying on roll-ups like the one that I work for, Aztec, for execution, the next bottleneck is going to be data because you can have all of these off-chain computers running like super fast execution, but these computers still need to validate that everything was correct by storing data in like a single source of truth, which is the Ethereum blockchain. And so the next step for Ethereum will be making data a lot cheaper for rollups. And they're gonna do so via these like data sampling and uh, techniques, including sharding. And what sharding is, is basically like not every validator is gonna have to carry the entire state of the system. So if there's like, you know, I'm gonna make up a number here because I actually don't know the number of like Ethereum's full system state, but you know, let's say there's like 50 gigabytes of state or something like that, rather than every single uh, node having to carry and serve, you know, the state of the system, maybe you only have to carry one fifth or one tenth or, you know, depending on how many shards. I believe on the roadmap, it's like 64 shards or something like that. And the goal there is to make the whole system much more performant and much more readily able to serve data to a whole bunch of, you know, off-chain execution engines, which are these rollups. And so it's really just about like, when you're when we're scaling the ethereum system unblocking each bottleneck in turn and the next bottleneck is going to be at least on this roll-up centric roadmap it's going to be data all right so to your point it says here that right now ethereum can do about 15 to 20 transactions a second in a world where the merge works and then the surge works the sharding hundred thousand transactions a second that's probably on par with visa's network yeah i think visa is like 20 or thirty thousand. yeah Oh, oh that's even that's even better um, I'm going to throw a couple more things out here. Um, I, I don't know what any of this means. So the verge uh, means implementing a mathematical proof called the Verkle trees and make stateless clients. Does that mean anything to you? <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, we're starting to get a little technical here, but my understanding is Verkle trees are uh, a, a I, it's, it's another step on the data availability, data compression uh, branch of optimization. So just making it much, much easier to serve data, um, and state to these execution engines. Okay. 
Oh, we don't have to go through the rest. But splurge just means all the other good stuff. <laughs> splurge sounds fun. But <laughs> yeah, John, can, let's I, can I just splurge. add a... I, I just wanted to kind of like recap for myself as well. And um, so t- to come back, you're talking about roll-ups there. Like I think... W- one of the things to call out here is like some of the things that aren't happening and our boy Nat Eliason wrote a pretty good summary of this Trung had shared it with our uh, little group just before and I don't know if any of these you you disagree with but a few of the things he said aren't necessarily happening he said first gas fees for transactions will not necessarily get cheaper um, that I think is the, the roll ups and the, the layer two stuff is actually what is helping that uh, whether it's your your solution or Polygon which we're going to talk about in the next segment um, so that's something I know like over the last year and a half I've heard people say things are going to get cheaper when we get to this um, proof of proof of stake model but apparently that is not the case here secondly transactions will not necessarily go faster he said and third Ethereum will not necessarily be deflationary the hope is like you said that it, that it might become but that is still not 100% guaranteed so I guess it depends on how things actually run um, and he's got a few other things in here but that those were a few things I wanted to call out um, is there anything else on uh, well like the roll-ups you, you were kind of getting a little technical there um, I just want to also call out like over the last year and a half we've talked about NFTs and for something that's tangible for people who are just getting their head around all this stuff is when you went to list your nft for sale or you sent a transaction and you went into metamask and there was a fee of a hundred dollars to you know list a 50 dollar nft that is what polygon and what you guys are working on is supposed to help right so transactions will actually go down and the way that that is going to happen is instead of um every single transaction having to go directly on the main net of ethereum there are these things called layer twos that do them in kind of like smaller batches and then eventually settle on Ethereum layer, right? Um, is there anything I'm missing from that that is worth us mentioning? Uh, no, I think I think that uh, Nat's a buddy and yeah, he totally nailed it unsurprisingly. Um, I will say that just because ETH isn't deflationary doesn't mean it won't be less inflationary, right? Even if just net issuance goes down, it could still be an inflationary asset, but just less inflation. I think the other thing worth calling out is what happens after the merge and this notion of like an ETH proof of work chain, right? Um, that some miners could continue mining and create an ETH proof of work fork, um, kind of like the Bitcoin Cash fork or like the Ethereum Classic fork. Um, and a lot of people on ETH are actually making a bet that ETH POW, which will be kind of this like other chain that forks away from ETH POS, will continue and will have value. And I think some like hilarious things are going to come out of that. So a lot of people. <laughs> are borrowing ETH right now because after the fork, you're gonna get two versions of ETH in your wallet, you're potentially, right? You're gonna get uh, the normal ETH that's gonna be proof of stake. And then you're gonna get airdropped potentially an ETH proof of work ether as well. And so you're kind of, you're gonna get this secondary asset that might have like questionable value. And actually Arthur Hayes at BitMEX has already spun up a a futures uh, market for this ETH POW token. And it's being valued at something like 3% of what Ether is being valued at now. And so there's all these games that people are trying to play being like, okay, you know, it's like seeing the equation in the sky, like, okay, there's like, I'm gonna get something that's like maybe worth 3% based on today's future valuation. So if I like borrow ETH, but like don't pay more than 3% for borrowing it, then it's like kind of free money. But also the borrow rate is gonna start spiking in the final hours because like, <laughs> let's say it's 11.59 on the night of the merge, 
and the merger is happening in like five seconds, well then shouldn't you want to like borrow a huge amount of ETH right then? Because like five seconds later, you're about to be airdropped like a bunch of assets. You're about to make 3% free money. And so like, okay, I think it's going to be hilarious in those five seconds, how high borrowing price, borrowing rates spike. Like you, you might see borrowing rates that are like 10,000% APY or something, because it's going to be like, people are going to be making this bet that like, I'm going to get this free airdrop asset. So it sounds like last year, man, <laughs> you're bringing back all these memories <laughs> yeah. of me. Exactly. <laughs> and like, this is one DGen play that's like, I don't think is, you know, to all the retail listeners, like I would not mess around with this because it's, there's just so many risks on all sides, but I do think it'll be a pretty fun day, like sitting on the sidelines. One, we should all hope that, you know, the merge goes through as intended, you know, without a hitch. But then there's going to be all of these like DGen games that are going to be funny to watch. And uh, every NFT collection is going to exist on this forked chain too, right? The proof of work. Yeah, I think I I think that'll be interesting. Um, I'm not I'm not sure what value that will have or whether there will be buyers on the other side. Like one of the things I've learned in crypto markets and markets in general is like if everyone believes something to be true, then like it's just not going to happen. So everyone in the world thinks they're going to get EPOW and dump it for free money, which means like nobody's going to be able to. Like. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's going to be funny to watch. No, not sure. investment advice. Actually, this one might be investment advice. Yeah, like oh, if it's man. such an obvious trade that like you sitting in your living room watching a TikTok from some crypto influencer believe you can do it, like for sure you're not going to be able to do it. Like for sure yeah, you're not going to be able to. Yeah. Incredible. Well, and then that kind of brings up the 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 extra not investment advice segment we have to ask, which is you talked about number go up earlier, right? And like a lot of people listen to this are wondering people's opinions on this. So like curious to get your take on how you think this will actually translate into price action up or down or sideways, short term, long term. Any thoughts on that? Really, really hard to tell. I mean, like if issuance actually goes down the way that everyone expects it to and demand for Ether as an asset goes up and there's this whole narrative of just like, oh, well, now it's a neo bond right now. There's this asset that pays 4% on itself in perpetuity, you know, going down slightly as, as more stake comes online. Um, well, institutions should really like this, right? And there's some indication from Gary Gensler, although not finalized yet, that it might also not be a security. So the regulatory risk might be off the table. I think there's just, there's a lot of tailwind in narrative, but we it, it's hard to know how much of that is baked versus not. You know, how much of that is already That's being baked into the price? price. Yeah, yeah, baked completely. into the price. And so like, I, I, my, my only piece of non-financial advice that I have to give to people with just assets in general is like, are you have to ask yourself, am I a market timer or am I a dollar cost averager? Do I just believe in this thing long-term or am I trying to trade it? If you're trying to trade it, then God bless, right? You have more balls than me. Uh, <laughs> I, I sure hope you have way more experience in the markets. Um, then yeah, go try to time these events, right? I'm not, I'm, I'm the worst trader in the universe. But I do no, believe I, I, I will give you a run for your money on that. I, I think I'm worse. <laughs> I think I'm worse. <laughs> it's it's very hard to be a trader. It's very hard to time the market, right? So if you believe in a thing, just like buy a little of it every month and dollar cost average in, right? And and it's it's hard to know where ETH is going to go long term. I still see it as like an option ticket to this Web three crypto universe that like fully doesn't exist yet. And so treat it like an option. How many options you you know out of the money call options are like 
series A or seed investments would you make a month in some like crazy future technology? Like make that your allocation and like buy that enough. Yeah, fair enough. Um, the last question I had on this before we move on uh, and Trung and Jack might have more questions, but um, another criticism has been, you kind of talked about centralizing power uh, a little bit earlier, but like the likes of, you know, so right now I stake my money on using Lido or I have like Lido set up or whatever um, to be able to stake if you need 32 ETH, right? So if you have that great, you can try to do it yourself, but that requires some sort of like technical setup and knowing what you're doing. Or you can go to something like Lido or even Coinbase offices, I think nowadays. Um, and that is kind of one of the criticisms, I guess, in that for essentially like we are all, I'm putting money into Lido and they are one of the big validators or whatever on proof of stake. And even though, yeah, it technically gives anyone with 32 ETH the ability to do this, in reality, majority of it is being run by Lido, I think has 30% already, um, and then Coinbase and maybe a few others. So I'm just curious to get your take on that. Do you think that is actually a negative thing? Um, or should we not really be worried too much about it? I'm not super worried about it, but you have to look down the stack of like Lido has a network of validators and I think they like evenly distribute their ETH among their validator set. But then if you go even deeper in the supply chain, a lot of the nodes are hosted on AWS. It's like some crazy percent. It's like, you know, 50% of the nodes are hosted on AWS. And maybe that's okay. And maybe like cloud provider centralization is not a risk, but, you know, we actually ran into this a couple of weeks ago, right before I went to Burning Man, where, um, you know, there were, there were some folks in the ETH community debating about, you know, how important is cloud provider centralization risk? And like in the comments of the Twitter, the number two largest cloud provider was like, hey, you might want to like check out this explanatory blog post. And like you click through and it's just like, if you host anything on our system to do with ETH, that's a violation of our terms of service. And they represented like 7% of like all node hosting. And so, yeah, that's a real risk. Like, you know, Amazon could wake up one day and just be like, yeah, we don't like this. Or the SEC is like, this is security. And AWS is like, we're turning this all off. Okay, well then where, do, where, where does everyone get hosted, right? Is everyone gonna have to buy their own servers? Like, is everyone gonna have to like, just where does it all go? And so I think those are worthy questions that like, we just don't know the outcome of. Um, but I, I think there are a sufficient number of players and like alternative providers and hosting services that are pressing on this. And like, you know, AWS doesn't necessarily have like the best brand in all of crypto. And so I think people yeah. are thinking hard about this. That's a really interesting point. It sounds like a lot of like Web3 chatter, whatever Web3 means, with a nice backbone of Web2 baked in, and like the risks that are associated with that. Um, yeah, Trung and Jack, any other questions? I'm on, just going to say, Big that? Daddy Bezos don't need Web3, man. He, <laughs> he rich. Big Daddy Bezos rich. <laughs> I mean, dude doesn't even work for Amazon anymore. One day he woke up, he's like, I quit. I'm going to get just lifting weights. It's really yeah. simple what he did. He he did that uh, He did that one Senate hearing. He's like, yo, I'm done, man. I'm not doing any more of these. He's like, yo, Andy. Come to the office. Yes. Um, Fair play. Yeah, I got, I got nothing more. I'm happy to do the Starbucks thing because uh, yeah, I actually your your thread made me think, and I got some, uh, uh, I got my rebuttal hat on. But um, um, all right, Jack, any last questions before no, we move on great. to Starbucks? Thank John, you, John. Thanks for breaking that down, man. Beautiful. Of course. Of course. Um, all right, go on, Trunk. Feels like you got something teed yeah, up. Yeah, just uh, the other, the other big news this week uh, in 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 Web three land was Starbucks. Well, this was announced a few months ago, but I guess it did the the it got official because it was on Twitter. 
and it got retweeted around. <laughs> Ryan Watt uh, from Polygon uh, uh, tweeted it out, and so did Starbucks and Polygon. So, okay, so John, tell us what's going on with Polygon and Starbucks, and can you tell us a little bit about Polygon uh, for the listeners that wouldn't uh, know exactly what Polygon does? Yeah, so Polygon's also a scaling solution for Ethereum. It's like not technically a layer two. It's it, it's got a its own proof of stake sidechain that is you know, nominally, nominally affiliated with Ethereum, but also Polygon's like this holding company with like a massive number of other networks. It's got like some very super legit ZK projects, like, you know, Polygon Hermes and Polygon Zero. ZK being zero knowledge. Zero knowledge. Okay. Yeah. Zero knowledge rollups. And, and they just, they're just working on a whole bunch of different things. Right. Um, but you can think of it as, as a scaling solution sidechain for Ethereum. Um, but what they came out with was Starbucks, they're not replacing their core rewards program. They're creating a new loyalty program called Starbucks Odyssey. And it seems like Starbucks Odyssey is just earning NFTs for certain purchase behaviors, right? So it's just like if you buy, you know, a limited edition pumpkin spice latte, then you'll get like a pumpkin spice latte NFT. And that NFT can later be traded for fill in the blank, right? You know, they're talking about like unique coffee experiences or, you know, it, it maybe it gates you for like other digital goods. Um, and, uh, you know, I tweeted about this because I was like, this is, I think this is pretty revolutionary because first of all, major corporation, they want to play around with NFTs and it doesn't seem really speculative. You know, they're kind of calling them stamps or stickers or whatever. And so that makes me be like, if it's a stamp or a sticker, you know, like the type you use in like Telegram and Signal and like chat apps, you know, WeChat, it's really just things that you purchase because like you think Starbucks is fun. And if you don't, if you're like, oh, Starbucks, how could Starbucks be fun? I hate their coffee. Then like, you truly don't understand middle America. You know, you don't yeah. understand nitro. You do not yeah. understand how yeah. hard nitro can wreck you. So <laughs> You don't understand nitro jet fuel. You don't understand pumpkin spice latte. You don't understand that like when Starbucks released like their limited edition tumblers, there were like people in the United States that collected like every Lined single up, yeah. one, right? Like, I mean, I remember when I was working on a food truck startup, I was in Elkhart, Indiana. And there's like two streets in Elkhart, Indiana, and one has a Starbucks on it. And there's like 30 cars lined up. Like Starbucks is, you know, we talk about third wave coffee. Like most of America is like not even at second wave coffee, right? Starbucks is a big deal. And so- I also love that it was cars lined up like a drive-through Starbucks, yes. right? It's yes. not even like, oh, we're walking in, like the complete opposite of like Italian culture, go up standing at the bar, have your espresso <laughs> yeah, and get sit going. sit there for an this hour. This is like sit in the car. <laughs> just yeah. roll through. Wait, wait, so how many, so this quick tangent, because people want to know about Harvard Business School. How many case studies from the two years you were at Harvard involved Starbucks? Was it more or less than 20? I think, oh, <laughs> I think only one, but it was a big one. You know, I, okay. I, yeah, it was a big one. It was a big one. Okay, so I, I actually want to give a little bit more context for people who don't understand how large Starbucks royalty loyalty program is. So we've talked about on the show, everybody's seen the meme, Starbucks is a bank, and it all comes from this loyalty program. So I'm going to show this this chart that, uh, that uh, this chart just kills me, man. So this is how much stored value Starbucks has in their uh, loyalty programs. Jesus Christmas. Okay, anyways, uh, I'm just wow. looking at the last, yeah. So the last five years for the listeners, uh, Starbucks has had over a billion dollars stored on the Starbucks loyalty cards, the loyalty program. That's it's, wild. It's, yeah, it's metamorphosized over the, the last few years. That's not even a word metamorphosized, but you guys know what I mean. It's morphed into this giant over the last couple of years. So uh, the stat that I saw, this is not directly 
uh, comparable because uh, these aren't liabilities necessarily for Starbucks. Well, they are. They are. They are not liabilities. But eighty-five percent of banks in the U.S. have less than a billion dollars in deposits. So this is where the Starbucks as a bank meme comes from, right? And the thing I actually didn't realize was. So the loyalty program works is that when you spend a dollar, you get a star, right? But I didn't realize it until yesterday until I actually looked at it. But when you preload, you get two stars. So they're incentivizing you to preload. So they have more money that just sits on these cards. And the other part of it is uh, when every year they get to do an auditing process and they get to determine how much of this uh, stored up value will or will not be used. And it's called breakage and it's about 10% a year. So just from last year, if there's 1.6 billion in stored value, they're getting paid $160 million to hold that, right? So, but that, that, that's just the bank part. But the interesting part when I read your thread was this, 25 million people, over 25 million people have the Starbucks app on their phone. And Starbucks app is responsible for more than 50% of purchases. So when you said, hey, this is Swag. revolutionary and this is interesting, what the first thing you realize, there might onboard more people onto Web3 than I mean, Coinbase has, I think, 80 or 90 million accounts, but we're talking like comparable, right? Is this part of your thinking when you said, oh, this is actually revolutionary because of the literally the volume of people that they could slow? Could you say that number again? How many users, uh, how many customers? 25 million people are using use, the app. Use the app. And the app is responsible for more than 50% of 50 sales. 50% of purchase, So wow. we're talking huge population using this regularly and now you're just kind of kind of backdoor in some web3 stuff I'm not going to call it web3 you're going to call it stamps uh so two questions then is this part of your thesis and the second part is do you actually need web3 for this which is the question you always have to ask yeah i, I mean i think it's absolutely gigantic right you can backdoor something in there where it's like okay i'm getting the stamps for free or i'm even incentivized to use them the way i use loyalty points because if i earn nfts it unlocks new nfts that might have dollar value, right? I might be able to sell them or gift them to people or might unlock experiences. Like, do you need Web3 for this? Like, let's think about why we, we, they couldn't just do it on a, on, a, you know, on a database or something like that. I think what's cool about using Web3 is it's a bet on open systems. It's like, we are literally allowing people to exit the loyalty system, not the primary reward system, but like this like side odyssey system. And they're playing around, right? They're not trying to unseat their $1.6 billion bank. They're like, okay, let's put this, let's let's create this new little thing on the side and see how valuable it is that people get to exit. And what by exit, I mean like usually loyalty is a one-way door. You buy into the system or you earn into the system, and then you're fucking locked, right? I, I saw some stat on Twitter the other day that American Airlines sells a billion dollars of points a year. A billion dollars. So they're already selling. I mean, think about that. Like it's a it's a it's a fake currency basically it's basically fake internet money for flying on planes they sell a billion of that a year and there's no reversing out once you earn into the points like we all know this once you earn points you're like that's what drives the loyalty is the closed system like oh fuck me i have thirty thousand points with american well i might as well fly american and earn a little more or maybe i'll pay them 50 bucks so i can buy a few more points so i can round up so i can do starbucks is saying no what if what if instead of getting in, it's not a one-way door, but it's a revolving door. If you don't like the loyalty system or if you've earned a bunch of points in the loyalty system, you don't like it anymore, you can just redeem and you can get out. And that is completely different to the way the corporations think about loyalty because the whole point is to lock users in and then just hold on to them tightly and just never let them go. And Starbucks is saying, what if the one of the biggest features we have yet to unlock is letting people leave? You know, it's, it's almost like a Burning Man thing. It's like, you don't like it here? 
just walk away. We'll literally pay you to walk away. You don't like this NFT we gave you for buying a pumpkin spice latte? Really? You don't like it? Okay, sell it. Sell it to a friend, give it away, and just and just leave. And you'll get all the value that you accrued from being part of being a loyal Starbucks customer. I think that's Wait, pretty so cool. just to be clear, they're not uh, what you're saying is this. They're allowing a side door on the side project. So Web3, they're they're bolting it on to this existing loyalty system. But what they're saying and what you're saying is, okay, well, at, with these NFTs, you can actually sell them to your friends, like you're saying. That's the exit on this side thing. Not touching the bank. We're not giving back those star points, right? But you're saying they're experimenting, and that's interesting. Is, is yeah. that Okay. And they're doing it in the most kind of, in the safest way, right? They're not doing it with the points. I think there's some good pushback that, like, if they did it with the points, there would immediately be, like, a securities consideration because, okay, okay now they're tradable, now they're marketable, et cetera. Um, so there's a big regulatory question there too. Is if the points were tradable, like would they would they eventually be a security? But they're trying to do it with like stickers, right? But and the stickers have some indeterminate monetary value, right? They're redeemable for like an experience, whatever that means. They're redeemable for like a coffee. And so yeah, they're trying to figure out can we create an ecosystem here that's thriving and vibrant and full of Starbucks super fans who want to earn and trade these things and like be involved. And be like, dude, I collected everything in the Odyssey. And once I collected everything in the Odyssey, I'm like, maybe I'm like, I have a complete Odyssey collection. I'm kind of done with this. Like, I want to move on to something else. Like, I can sell it to another super fan, another super fan who's just dying, literally dying to get, you know, the type of person who gets 40 pumps in there, you know, and then people that don't believe it, middle America drive through people. Actually, so John, as you're speaking, I I know Bilal and Jack have some thoughts here, but I, I just made a connection that. Tell me what you think about this. So you're talking about the ecosystem and with this Odyssey stuff. It, it actually it started to click for me. It's like, you know how iPhone about four or five years ago, iPhone stopped reporting kind of their, uh, they stopped, the main number was no longer how many units of iPhones they sold. It was the installed user base. And it's because there's so much people reselling their, you know, we buy iPhone 8, you sell your iPhone 6. And so I, Apple's like, wait, wait a sec, we want the market to think about our company like this. It's not, who cares how many iPhones we're selling this year? Because we have so many old iPhones now that are installed user base, even though we're not making money on that secondary transaction, we're just gonna make money from all the services and apps that people buy, right? So this sounds like to me though, a, a world where, like you said, they're opening up, they're gonna increase the installed user base because especially under 15s, which is actually a little bit devious because I've seen a lot of kids drinking Starbucks. I'm like, that's kind of fucked up, man. I'm like, you should not be drinking caffeine at that age. <laughs> and uh, definitely not nitro, that should be illegal. <laughs> but um, tell me what you think about this idea of like the installed base. Like there's just, they might be capturing these under 20s, these under 15s with this play. Absolutely, and people who are fans and want to engage with the brand beyond just like coffee and physical experiences. Like I think one of the really underrated acquisitions from a while ago was like Nike acquiring Artifact, right? And I actually have a buddy who works at Jordan Brand, and he's like, "Do you understand how many people want to be, want to own Nikes, want to own Jordans, want to be part of the brand halo, but can't afford it?" It's like we take it for granted because we're like, you know, douchebag, coastal, middle class people who can afford one hundred fifty dollars Nikes. There are so many billions of people around the world to whom Nike is an aspirational brand. Just like there are many millions of people around the world to whom Starbucks is an aspirational brand. So if you can sell them something or get them engaged in the brand in a way that's much lower cost of entry, that gets them involved in a way that's not your core product. So, you know, Jordan's not selling people Jordan brand shoes. They're selling them now digital Jordans. And like just the idea of having a certified digital Jordan 
is an entry point to the brand for someone who's young, somebody who's not in the right socioeconomic class to like access the core brand experience. We'll see what happens, but I think that's ridiculously powerful. And John, are they are they actually using the word NFT externally for this? Like when you're setting this up, do you know if they're going to be using that kind of language? Because I know you said in your thread, like NFTs have a bit of a bad rep right now. The drop, the volume has dropped ninety percent. Um, I'm talking about just to the average person who's heard about NFTs over the last year and might have heard of a crazy story. Um, so yeah, I'm just curious if you know much more about how they position it in that way. In their press release, they say NFT multiple times. It's not clear whether in-app they'll just call it a stamp. Um, and and it, it is hilarious that we're in this constant rebrand race away from kind of, I don't know what to call it, like the speculative Ponzi-like nature of certain crypto games. Because like that's why people started to talk about Web3, because crypto seemed too speculative. But now Web3 seems like it's been poisoned by like the same type of speculation. So like we're going to need to invent another name. And so I think that it, it's interesting to see corporations try to get away from that as quickly as possible. And that's why I think the Starbucks thing is so impactful. It's not speculative. It's not interesting. It's boring. You need to it's rename loyalty. it to something like uh, benign and not scary like Nitro. <laughs> <laughs> Jack, you have any questions? No, no questions. I just, uh, I just think the idea of attaching this to something that people do every day or most days is also a really powerful thing, right? Like the same way that collectibles drove a lot of the NFT hype, this idea of like anchoring something like this to part of your routine. I can't remember who said this it was like addictions are the best businesses. Somebody, some successful venture Steve capital Jobs. investor, I'm sure. Howard Schultz when <laughs> yeah. he invented Nitro. Mark Zuckerberg. Yeah, there you go. And, <laughs> and that, like, the, you could just build a lot of things around that, like, shelling point of a daily routine, we'll call it, instead of addiction. But there's, like, uh, there's power in that. And that's, like, that's uh, just gives them so many opportunities to experiment with stuff. And obviously, people love it. Uh, product Product uh, keeps people coming back. That's it. Um, all right, yeah, that's it. I trunk. Did you have something there, mate? You look like no, you about to say uh, something. I was wondering uh, if John wanted to hang around for like ten fifteen for Kanye. If you, if yeah, I want to hear. All, all right, right. let's do it. Great, thanks for breaking that all down for us. By the way, man, that was course, awesome. Yeah, trunk, over to you on, well, on actually, Kanye. Jack, you, you sent this uh, article to us. Uh, what was kind of the top line of this Kanye piece? Well, I wanted to do the negotiating in public. Have you guys seen the his Instagram recently? Yeah. Do you want yeah, to give after, a, yeah, what's been get, going on? Because I just saw him going a little ham, basically saying something like there's been a problem with Adidas, right? Yeah, and so my, underst yeah. Yeah, my understanding of it is like Adidas tried to release shoes of his in colorways that he hadn't approved. I don't know if that's the extent of it. I'm sure there's been a lot of headbutting and like... Well, they also did a slides, a, the Adidas slides that look too much like his slides. Yeah, without, there you go. Yeah. So basically people just taking his IP and like the contract that he signed is be, he doesn't feel as though it's being upheld. And I, like a couple years ago when you were paying attention to all that stuff, it was like he was really trying to get partnerships with these big brands to get the infrastructure, to get his stuff out there, like at proper scale, not even like, you know, boutique fashion scale. He wants to do like millions and millions of units. Gap. Adidas. Right, right. It ain't rough Moles. though. Is the famous yeah. line we've referenced well, here, a few I'll, times. I'll throw the numbers. So the deals he's done, right, is uh, his deal with Adidas. He gets fifteen percent royalty on wholesale, 
and uh, for Yeezy and specifically, yeah. obviously for Yeezy, yeah, uh, that's doing over hundred million a year for him because that's a multi-billion-dollar brand. And uh, his Gab deal, similar, he's going to get a royalty. I don't know what it is. I think it's double digits, which is actually insane. Because so Jordan makes five percent on Jordan brand sales. Oh wow! So Kanye negotiated three times the Jordan thing. Not the same type of volume though, obviously. And Nike, Nike's distribution is obviously probably worth it. Um, and that's why point, he moved originally from Nike yeah, to that's Adidas why left, left, that's because why Nike. he wasn't getting the deal he wanted. So uh, his gap deal is 8.5 million common stock. Uh, that's worth now about 70 million, but it's unlocks on revenue goals. So I think what's interesting about Kanye, and it goes back to our buddy, um, uh, Dan Runshi from Trapital. I don't know if you guys read him. He's an incredible newsletter. But he says what Kanye is doing with his business career is Jay-Z versus, uh, who's the other Rockefeller guy? Dame Dash? Yeah, Jay-Z versus Dame Dash. Jay was, uh, it was all about partnering. Jay-Z's partner with Reebok, uh, bought Title. Partners, well, interesting, Jay-Z always partners with a second or third person in the industry. Mm, I, that's I think he sees a larger runway to, to bring them yeah. up. But Dame Dash was all about ownership and all about uh, you know black excellence. And there's a video that uh, Dan put on Twitter, which is amazing. He was, uh, Kanye was at the morning show and he was explaining what he learned from those two. And he's like, I'll be honest with you, like Dame was much realer. He's the guy that if you want to be an entrepreneur, that this guy's real, he doesn't give a shit, but Jay-Z's a shark. Jay's the type of guy that what I learned from is I, I learned how to walk into a room of billionaires and interact, right? So I guess what I'll say is this. Uh, the first question I had, uh, uh, I had a question for John and then I'd love for Jack to expand on uh, the Kanye stuff was, John, from Harvard Business School lens, <laughs> <laughs> give us your take on Kanye. Just your on-the-seat hot take on Kanye's business acumen. Man, I, I'm not, I don't... I, I don't have a strong take on, on Kanye as a, as a business person, but um, uh, yeah, I, I would say that, like, I, I don't know. I, I haven't been super impressed probably because he hasn't owned anything. Um, you know, it's like, let me put it this way. Uh, Kanye is probably one of the most influential people who's ever lived on this planet. And he has a awareness canon that's, you know, on the level of Kardashians. And like, not only that, and the fact that I said that, that's on the level of Kardashians tells you how little respect I have with, for, for what he's done with the canon. Because the Kardashians are just like incredible. They're, they're, they're sharks and they're incredible at like sucking credibility away from other people and, and like aggregating that power. But Kanye is like, he's the source of a lot of that power. And if you look at what some of the Kardashians have done with like creating their own businesses, you know, now Kim has her, her own like, you know, private equity firm. Like they understand that once you get to a certain point, you can basically demand anything you want, including full ownership and control. I actually am pretty sure that the Kardashians went to my old firm, Bain Capital, and they went to, to go sell 50% of the business um, when they were offboarding um, the Kylie Cosmetics. And, you know, it was a really raw deal. It was like, basically, we'll sell you a minor minority share of Kylie Cosmetics, get us ourselves some liquidity, clip all the upside, maintain control. And I think my old firm, you know, I don't remember, but I think they said no. And then they went and shopped that around and eventually someone took the bait for that, right? Um, so this notion that like you can stand up an entire business and demand whatever terms you want, that's the type of power that global recognition thing gets you. Um, I'm like a little bit surprised that Kanye keeps taking these kind of like royalty deals. And it could just be because he's like not a great operator. Like in order to be an owner, you have to be an, an amazing operator, right? And maybe what Kanye is really good at is just being a brand. 
Well, hold on. So Kanye does own 100% of Yeezy, but yeah, the, I was just about the, to the, ask the that. actual money, but to your point though, right? The actual, the money canon is just from the royalty arrangement. And actually the headline that Jack sent was, he said yesterday, he told Bloomberg, like, I'm never working with a company again, but he got a contract 2026 with Adidas, 2030 with Gap. And this is the money quote before Bilal jumps in here. He says, I'm just going to consider these two companies my baby mamas, my new baby mamas. <laughs> Incredible. No, no, I, my point was just what you were going to say. I do think he owns 100% of Yeezy. And, and so, like, I mean, he's become a billionaire on paper, right? Like, with the various stakes of the businesses. So, I think, like, I completely agree, like, in terms of, like, Kardashian and him is actually quite a good comparison because... Like, if you think the amount of creative stuff he's done, like the goodwill he had early on in his career, compare that to now, where it's like almost the opposite with like a regular person on the street. That if you say Kanye, if you even say something positive about him, people get like antsy about it. Um, and, and I'd say like with, let's say Kim Kardashian specifically, because I know they've all been doing different things. I feel like she's almost like the opposite, where she started off getting famous with this Ray J sex tape, which has also been kind of in the press again recently. And now she's come full circle where she's doing the legal stuff and like helping people get out of jail and like all the kind of goodwill stuff, where even people like me who have, I've never watched the Kardashian show, but I'm like, I kind of respect what she's doing right now. Like, this is crazy. She just raised the private equity fund or whatever. Um, and just, uh, yeah, it's very, it's, pretty interesting on that side um i just think with kanye specifically he's just i mean he's very erratic is probably a nice way of putting it um and like you know even just watching in in this documentary you see him in some of those meetings and you're like man this is like he just goes off and you could just tell everyone there is just like what the hell is happening right now and like one person might check him but most of the time they don't so yeah just to keep operating at that level i, I don't know if that's going to keep being able to work the way he's been partnering because i think ultimately he just needs to do his own stuff but he wants kind of best of both worlds he wants the it ain't ralph though i want the factories of adidas and the you know the supply chain etc etc but he wants the full creative control so that is that is difficult to have um but yeah i don't know i didn't have anything else to add apart from that Jack, any anything on Kanye? No, you nailed it. You nailed it. I think uh, that like it's the the hyper level of creativity and like creative genius is kind of in opposition to like sitting down and planning how a supply chain is going to function at a global scale, right? It's like yeah, you have to give away something to get that level of finesse on the operational side. Um, but his, t I think his creative talent is just so high up there that like you know that's the internal battle that he's having and i think that yeah you just can't imagine like the levels and layers of bureaucracy that exist in like global uh apparel manufacturers are massively complex for probably reasons beyond i'm ever going to understand in my lifetime yeah. so we'll see how he well, gets especially on. right now man with the supply chain yeah crisis like their, their margins are already crazy thin and like you get like someone like him trying to do wild stuff sometimes it just doesn't seem to work um to your point earlier jack about negotiating in public i think that's kind of an interesting thing to go into a little bit oh, it yeah, actually yes. it actually reminds me a bit of dave chappelle with 
who was it HBO or uh, about the Chappelle show Comedy Central Comedy Central Comedy Central Comedy Central so like to give people the background on that like he had this deal with I don't know the exact details but he had this deal on Dave Chappelle show he signed a long long time ago and in the last year or two he basically came out and said I'm not making any money off this and kind of asked everyone to boycott it and like that got a lot of steam people started being like wait a minute how are you not making money off this anymore and um and and i'd say like with kanye in a similar way he's basically the similarity for me is like they both signed the deals and now they're kind of complaining about the deals and my without knowing the details obviously it's difficult to comment but well he did post his entire oh, United, yeah. <laughs> the, the, the music contract on twitter oh yeah the but, kanye uh, one i think yeah. this is too uh, uh the point you're bringing up a lot with the Chappelle is exactly what john said is like you look at how fucking famous and influential this guy is and you're like damn how did this guy not how's he not richer and he's just putting it all out there and he's telling you why it's like these are my arrangements but uh i mean he signed them and we'll, who knows what's gonna happen next though well it's also yeah. like you can't you can't say that somebody would have attained level x of fame without said partnership either right like a record deal if you didn't have a record deal 10 15 years ago nobody know who you are now yeah. it might be different but it's like you can rake back through things and say, here's how I would have favorably, favorably set up the terms of this deal based on where I am now. And yeah, there's very like you can say with merit that some of these things aren't fair in hindsight or, you know, seem like um, kind of extractive or predatory. But at the same time, there's the, the quid pro quo of like the distribution that got you to the point where you could have this opinion now and or publicly broadcast this opinion i should say on your own platform and the the stuff that he was posting like two weeks ago on instagram was like individually posting Hilarious. pictures of the board members of adidas on his instagram <laughs> so just, good and like his so text messages and just like it's kind of like almost the opposite of the kardashians right where you have this like polished hyper yeah. like yeah every completely. image is curated to the pixel and then he's like screenshotting like confidential documents i'm posting them on instagram the absolute so. best one was when he yeah. uh he did the photo of his uh, wealth manager from uh, jp morgan like, oh, yeah, yeah, manager. Yeah, she's like yeah. this guy won't even put me in touch with jamie diamond yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, what kind of team what kind of wealth management team is this yeah. um actually i got a i got a question for john john so you've done a, a big thing for harvard business school hundreds of case studies do you have a case study that uh that comes to mind that is kind of this entertainment business related uh, I actually never took the course, but Anita Elbersey is like, you know, whisper to the stars at HBS. She's uh, the, you know, arts and entertainment professor at HBS. She's a huge deal. I'm sure she has a book out. Um, she hosts like stars all the time. Um, her whole thesis is that entertainment is a hit driven business. It's all about the hits and almost all of the values aggregated in the megastars. Um, so yeah, she has a whole thesis that she's expounded on for years there at HBS. Um, I think there's a, there's a lot of content there. Yeah. Try and get her on boys. That's it. Well, <laughs> I think one of you, one of you just said it before. I think Jack, you were saying about the distribution and you wouldn't be where you are without that initial deal. Another, um, one that comes to mind with parallels to this is Taylor Swift had that, is it with Scooter Braun? And there was a whole public dispute again. Like she was going out to a fan and saying, I'm not getting any of this. I don't own rights to my first album or whatever it was. And again, like when I read that, I was like, yeah, as a someone who like, like is a creative person too and who loves the creative, 
I want that person to gain from it, but I, the business side of me is like, you signed the deal. Like, you know, like deal with the consequences. At the same time, if she was like 12 years old, well, yeah, she of did. course. She re-recorded all those originals. And now oh, when you go it. to Spotify, it says Taylor Swift version. And you know which one that's you're going to click. All right, I respect that. That's like- Yeah, to, you that know, was a boss ass move, that's man. That's like, like, okay, we, we deal with the consequences, but now I've got my own version. And of course, yeah, that's, that's my- um yeah really interesting man anything else on kanye boys before we lock off no that was per i mean nah, uh, jack good. john yeah it's all good uh jack i mean john thanks a lot for coming on brother of course boys always fun where are you gonna be for the merge tomorrow john <laughs> you know i don't have a home yet. <laughs> I don't have a home yet. i'm not going to like a merge party but uh geez, watch the blocks live yeah. like, yeah, this yeah, this Times square he's going to Times square yeah, count yeah. down the blocks drop the ball Oh man, I'm sure there's some, some stuff going on in some warehouse n near around where you boys live. <laughs> Matt, I was saying, I told the boys in the text, but I went to an, a, a Web3, uh, what is it? Fashion Week meets wow, Web3 so event last night. Yeah, it was one of my friends, I had to go support, but on the 69th floor of the World Trade Center. <laughs> and I was like, okay, just for this, I gotta be there. I was like, oh my God. And it was, yeah, because of the fashion week, the, the ratio was a little bit less Bored Ape Yacht Club and a bit <laughs> more fashion week, which made it a bit more of an interesting party. But um, anyway, yeah. Thanks again for coming on, John. We'll uh, put this out tomorrow. Well, let me leave John with this last nugget. Uh, yeah, go on. John, I don't know if uh, we told you last time, but the reason Jack sold his Bored Apes is he went to NYT NFC uh, <laughs> fall 2021. He's like, whew, <laughs> if this is the peak, this looks like this might be the peak of the <laughs> asset job. class. Great job, dude. <laughs> Thank you very much. Thank Talking about much. timing, timing the market. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, uh, Man, Amazing well, guys. We might have to have you back back on next week, John. Depending on how this yeah, goes. Depending on how it goes. <laughs> exactly. Hopefully it all, all goes well. Yeah. Hopefully there isn't news for me to cover, but we'll we'll have to see. That's I it. always appreciate it. Awesome. Yeah. Thanks for coming on, man. And thanks, again, John. thanks for being here, everyone. And uh, yeah, we'll see you next week on the next one. Cheers. All right. Peace out. See you guys.